everyone, welcome to episode six of How to Fix Magic, brought to you by Team Lotus Box. My name is Adarag Das, and today I'm joined with Zanside. What's up, dude? Nothing much, dude. I am super excited for our new guest. It's Wilson Hunter, the CEO and co-founder of Cardboard Live. Welcome, Wilson. Hello, friends. Happy to be here with my favorite podcast host and Anurag today. It's really exciting. I, I haven't been on a <laughs> podcast with Wilson for so long. So backstory here is that Wilson and I actually were on a podcast together. It was called like the Neo Brainstorm Show or something like that. I've already forgotten. Uh, but oh, we, we did like 17 episodes or so, and it was great. I had so much fun doing all of it. Like right now, he's got this like this big smile on his face, and I'm I'm feeling I'm feeling the vibe. It's just like a throwback to the old days. So, you know, Wilson, got to have you here. So, a large portion of today's topic, we're gonna be talking about like you. We're gonna be talking Ooh. about your debut. I guess feel I feel weird calling it like a product because it just seems like it's so much more than that at this point. But whatever, your debut product. We're gonna talk about cardboard live. And then, you know, we're just going to, you know, sort of like shoot the shit a little bit, hang out, you and me, and we're going to talk with Zan and you know, just figure some stuff out. So, Zan, I guess uh, I want you to sort of drive the conversation and ask Wilson the deepest, darkest questions you've always wanted him to answer, because you get 40 minutes right now to find out everything you ever wanted to about this guy and Cardboard Live. Go go for it. Go for it. What you got? Go for it. Uh, all right. I mean, I don't think I'm going to ask any like dark stuff. I think I'm going to talk about some surface level stuff. Right. Like one thing I've always wanted to know, what was going through Wilson's mind when he brought vampires to the pro tour? What was he thinking? Oh, snap. All right. What was I thinking then? So that was maybe like the fourth pro tour I had played on. I did a lot of testing with my friend, Philip Braverman. At the time, we didn't have access to big testing teams. Uh, you know, we were just sort of testing on our own on Magic Online. And our strategy up until that point had been to try to figure out some sort of interesting or uh, interesting strategy to beat what we perceived as the best deck. Mm -hmm. So I'm really bad at retelling this story because I, I, I told this is actually like deep within the crevices of my brain. I sort of forgot about it. Um, it was it was insane to watch. Honestly, I was like, I had heard about you. I had heard about Philip Baverman, like the crazy things that he's done in North Carolina. And this was the first time I saw you guys at the Pro Tour, and I was like. Like, I, I think I saw you guys, like, in the earlier rounds, like, round four or something like that, crushing with this mono-white vampires deck. I think it was mono-white. And you guys yeah. just never stopped crushing. I think one of you guys had a deck tech as well, right? Yeah, Phil got the deck tech. I ended up finishing, like, 22nd, I think, in that Pro Tour, which was my best finish. And so it was just, it was cool. It was a very fun deck. It, it, it was a little bit complicated, so... You know, basically, if people knew how to play against that deck, I think that we would have lost like half the matches that we won. Mm -hmm. But this was a format where team or energy, I'm sure a lot of people remember that deck. It was very grindy. It had a lot of good long game. But the yeah. secret was that this white deck could actually go longer and wider because of some of the combos of making a million tokens. Uh, I think that there was some, what was it, Legion Conquistador, basically the Squadron Hawk uh, Grey yeah. Ogre. Uh, oh, plus yeah. Oketra's Monument, all those cards. I mean, you could make infinite dudes, and uh, it was just really fun. So, yeah, me and Phil sort of figured out through testing a Magic Online that the deck was a little weird. Probably if you played against it perfectly, it wouldn't do great, but it really surprised a lot of people who I think were grinding mirrors for weeks on end. So Yeah, I feel like uh, in that format, you only had one enemy, and that was um, 
can't remember the name. It's like the two three energy dude that made Thopters. Yeah, Whirler was, Virtuoso or whatever. Yeah, Whirler Virtuoso. I think that was the only enemy because like nobody was playing any board wipes. They were all playing just one for one removal. But yeah, I mean like that's essentially when I like honestly started respecting your your magic game was from there because I'm I would say I'm more part of the new school magic rather than the old school. So the other things I wanted to know about you were when did you start playing magic? And I mean, like magic is still relevant to your business. So like, what does magic mean to you now? Yeah. Wow. Those are big questions. So I started playing magic when I was in middle school. I was a really weird kid. I grew up to be a really odd adult. So magic was a way that I, you know, made friends in school, had a great time, started going to FNMs in high school, got more competitive in college, uh, started testing with some of my good buddies who ended up being lifelong friends. We all went to the same school, like the Bravermans. A lot of people know them. Went to Appalachian State University with me. And uh, we drove like 20 hours round trip to Providence, Rhode Island and back uh, for a GP. And mm -hmm. I, I spiked a top eight of this legacy Grand Prix in, in 2011. And uh, that's how I made the first pro tour I ever got on. Did not do great. I went 4-4. And at that time, 4-4 did not day two. But it sort of hooked me because I really, I, I guess going into that, you know, I was, I was a little intimidated, but sort of felt like through the testing that we did, realized that we had something special with our group of friends and that we could actually compete and, and do these things. And yeah, for the next 10 years, started getting a little more competitive. You know, I never got into full-time uh, yeah. grinding. Like I, I've always had, you know, a job and family that take up most of my time, but mm -hmm. um, definitely devoted some time to the GP circuit when that was a thing. I've played on six pro tours. I made silver level pro. Um, done. Whoa. I did decently at some SCG invitationals. Um, mm -hmm. Made top four of one of those, which was fun. And uh, so that's my whole magic history. So I'm sort of one of those, you know, competitive casuals, if you will. I don't know. I don't know the term for that. But. I don't think I would label you as a casual because every time you've taken, yeah, dude, you said you went to the pro tour six times. Like that, yeah. you, you can't be casual after that, dude. You literally can't thing. be casual. And well, you guys know, like, I mean, the, we, we talk to people all the time. They go to like hundred plus pro tours, like Hall of Fame, all this crazy stuff. It's like nothing to me. But, yeah, that's fair. Know. That's fair. But I mean, I would still list your accomplishments in the top 1%, if not less than that of magic players. Yeah. You're definitely part of this elite category that I was like, always just like that always, whenever they dedicated like 70% of their time, they achieved whatever goal that they want to achieve. I mean, hitting silver is no joke. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the old pro player system, I mean, silver was at times impossible, but yeah, I mean, going to six pro tours, getting a top 32 finish, no joke. Okay. Wait a well, minute. It was fun. Yeah. going. I do know where the casual comes from. I got it. Okay, I thought about this, and I was thinking, what do I know about Wilson Hunter? And the one thing I will say is, like, if you just look, like, you had your, your vampires to, um, you know, your your pro tour. You took Painter. That's the deck that you top eighted with back in 2010 at that Grand Prix you were talking about, right? And then even, like, your other Grand Prix top eight with Miracles, right? I just feel like, uh, Mr. Hunter, that every single time, like, you're you're not doing what everybody else is doing. You're just like doing your own thing and you're making it work kind of deal. Like obviously, like if it doesn't work, you drop the idea, right? But you know, like actually locking in this like white deck for like a scene as big as the Pro Tour, or actually like not playing like or not you know playing like the stock type of miracles that everyone else was on back in the day, or 
I mean, like, Painter is also just, like, out the wazoo weird kind of deal. You know what I'm saying? So, like, I, I guess this is just, like, um, creative paint, paint brush stroke. That's that's how I feel like uh, that's that's kind of like what you are. Maybe that's what, like, got you where you are right now with uh, Cardboard Live and that sort of thing, right? So I I think it's kind of cool. I definitely I definitely do appreciate that a lot more now than I used to just because, like, before I was like, ah, oh, I got to win, win, win. But, like, now it just feels like a large portion of Magic for me personally is, like, actually having fun and, like, the social element of it, too, is 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 really interesting as well but um you you did mention wilson that you had you know like you didn't actually ever get on the grand prix circuit grind because you were like doing all this other sort of stuff right so i mean talk to me about your life maybe before cardboard live because i feel like there's a lot right because like the narrative to come up with a product as crazy applicable and like I, I don't know. In my mind, I think car I think really good things about cardboard life, and it, it might just like sound a lot more seductive if you talk to me about that later on. But like, let's let's talk about the path to that point. What were you doing before cardboard life? Yeah. Okay. Great question. So you know, I've I've never held a job where I I work for anybody. You know, I I find uh, maybe I have some personality traits that, that cause that to be the case. But before cardboard live, I had a small business where I designed uh, and and printed and sold yearbooks to schools. And I grew that up from uh, just starting right out of college over six years. And I had, you know, a portfolio of schools in, in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. And it sounds very different and it absolutely is extremely different. But through that, I learned all of the different aspects of business. So from, you know, sales, marketing, designing product, having something manufactured and created and, and fulfilling orders and, and all those things. So it was, it was a great experience. It wasn't particularly fun like I, I have now with Cardboard Live, but it, it was definitely a grind, hundreds of miles in the car, you know, every, every day and renting trucks to deliver truckfuls of yearbooks to schools. So it was definitely a lot of hard work, but that's what I did. And so through that, I met a lot of interesting people. I met um, a few people that I guess you consider angel investors, people that have been successful in business, and I had sort of soft-pitched them some of my ideas that came from my passions in the card game space, and one of them decided to uh, make an initial investment if I agreed to quit what I was doing and, and pursue those goals full-time, and I did, and it was a little bit crazy because at the time it was like almost it was very little funding to accomplish what we needed to do, but I had to basically take that, build what is considered a minimum viable product or an MVP to show that people are interested in it, you know, raise a little bit more funds, build something more substantial, and then go from there. And the whole time it's, you know, you're operating very lean. You're just trying to, you know, meet your next goals while also having this, this big vision in mind. And uh, that was sort of the journey for the, the first couple of years getting to this point. Yeah, that sounds actually ridiculous because, um, I mean, if somebody came up to me and told me like, hey, quit your job, I'll pay you some money, but like not enough money. Like, I mean, you've got a family, you've got kids, right? So like that must have been like certainly like some sort of like hurdle to like sort of like, but I mean, like I also sort of get it, right? Like you're mentioning like spending hours in a truck just like driving down a road to drop off your books. Like, I mean, it's not for everyone. It's cool, but it's not for everyone. And I get the feeling that like, you know, like transitioning to this, maybe something that you're much more passionate about just because it's the connection to magic, the connection to like, you know, your ideas, entrepreneurship, this and that, like it, it's a scary transition. So like, how, how did you handle that? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, my wife is my best friend and having her support behind this whole thing was, was critical, you know, and meeting James. 
So uh, I think a lot of people know James Shu, who's my co-founder, mm-hmm. Cardboard Live. James has a skill set that I do not. And, you know, he's worked at a lot of big tech companies, meeting the right people who also connected us with a team of developers who are also passionate about the project. So in starting something, you need more than just yourself. You need several people that are, are interested enough in an idea that everybody's willing to take some sort of risk relative to their life. So even our developers agreed to build an MVP and invest a lot of time into our project without you know, a lot of initial uh, compensation for that because they believe so much in it. And so, yeah, part of it was just getting that whole team together, initial investor, co-founder, and team of developers, and then you know, going from there and proving that this thing could happen because you have to eventually prove yourself and, and that, that you can lead that sort of thing and you, know, you're, you get the team to continue on and and all believe in each other. So yeah, I guess that's that's the long answer to your question. I like that. Definitely like, I don't know, like I just feel like one one of these days I might run into the same thing where like I quit my full-time job and I go all in on like streaming or content creation. But like when I look at some of the numbers right now, I'm just like, this doesn't seem like something I could do. Cause like, I mean like, yes, you know, my wife has a job and she does great and whatever, but I feel like it's 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 just a lot. It's just a lot. I mean- I think that like we're we're definitely in a time period where we're supposed to be doing stuff like that. And like I can't imagine like you talking about the burn rate um of when Carbor Live was fresh and dropping your job with a family behind you. Like I'm I'm trying to do similar things as a single person. I can't imagine having that that burden with a significant other. Um definitely sounds way more scary. And I guess it has kind of been the reason why I've held off on on marriage. It was pretty scary. I will say though that I've always been scared uh, and this is obviously nothing wrong with with any sort of desk job or anything, but me personally I was always scared of getting trapped into the golden handcuffs of some sort of, you know, typical business like middle management grind or or whatever. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. have a great technical background, so my alternatives are also not as great in my opinion in my in my mid to early 20s as somebody like my co-founder James. Mm-hmm. So when somebody like me uh, takes that sort of leap, you know, I'm really leaving behind some things that are not really that awesome alternatives, even though it is pretty scary. And that's sort of the way I looked at it. I was like uh, more fearful of of just sort of like just typical business American, you know, grind than than maybe this that thing failing. But I will say another thing. It is very difficult now that startups became so hot. I actually, I have a weird startup journey. I didn't really know much about the hype behind, you know, startups and entrepreneurship and fundraising and all the, all the Silicon Valley stuff and everything else at all until I started learning about it through, through just sort of doing it. And yeah. it's actually, all of those things create a barrier for people that actually want to create something that they're passionate about because you, ha- you do have a lot, unfortunately, a lot of people that are chasing like, you know, the billion dollar unicorn outcomes. And that's why they get into doing a startup. Um, But the reason I always did this is because I was really tired of the day to day. And I I really, to be honest, had this realization where I woke up, I was like, I want to do something that I love every day. Sounds cliche, but that's really, I felt like I could be a better husband and dad and everything else if I, if I were doing that. Plus, you know, that's just (laughs) a better way to live life. It all sounds very simple, but I think I had, it took me several years to realize that I should do that. Yeah, but I do think that over time, my hope is that entrepreneurs who who build things that they're passionate about float to the top, and you know, in in a way that they find ways to be su- successful. It's very hard 
and uh, we still have a, a long way to go, but that's my idealistic hope, I guess. So. No, that makes that makes a ton of sense because I 100% believe that unicorn, that the billion-dollar unicorn that people are chasing doesn't come from you sitting down trying to think of an idea. It comes from you being in the space that you're passionate about, and it will just it'll, it'll just come to you when the time is right. And, like, you really don't know what's the billion-dollar idea until like you just start acting on it, uh, acting on in that space. And we've kind of done that with tournaments. That's like something that I've been super interested in for super long, been playing them for a super long time. And now I want to be making them. And, you know, like that's what we're trying to like figure out. And hopefully from that, we'll be able to create something. But uh, yeah, speaking of billion dollar idea. So Wilson, here's what I want to ask you, right? So your billion dollar idea. Uh, yeah, I'm a hard drop to be there. Uh, cardboard live, right? <laughs> so at this point, I feel like it's it's not really like a new thing. People know about it, right? Like you've already like made it. You've got cardboard live showcased on like Star City Games events. You've got cardboard lives uh, showcased on literal like worlds of Magic: The Gathering. You know the Mythic Invitationals, all these high level, premier level events, right? So basically, as far as I'm concerned, you you you've you put your foot down, you've solidified, you know what this product is, and you've you've provided value to the community to the point where people actually want it, you know, everywhere, right? Like even even streamers like me and Zan use this on a day to day basis. So it's like, you know, very very like well done, I guess. That's the question. So what I want to ask you is a little bit. I want to like pick your brain sort of and figure out like why cardboard live like where did the idea for this come from like and also you know why did you choose to like go about it this way and then maybe even like what are your thoughts about cardboard live just like a from like a macro perspective like because it feels like something like cardboard live has the potential to be much more applicable than just magic the gathering so yeah speak to me on that yeah, those are a lot of great questions. So Cardboard Live, as everybody has used it, we, we still consider it very much in the MVP or minimum viable product phase, which is get something in the hands of people, test product market fit, you know, see if your hypothesis is right that, that people want the thing that you're building. And we think that that first step has, has been successful. You know, we created a series of, of Twitch apps that allow for interactive stream viewing for card games. Uh, we did it for Magic and this other game called Skyweaver, which we're excited about. Um, we also did image recognition on through a stream, which was, you know, prior to Arena, uh, when we started Cardboard Live, we wanted to digitize the paper Magic streaming experience, and that has taken a back seat because of COVID and Arena and everything else. However, we did have the first usage of uh, OCR image recognition in a... Uh, a Twitch stream event, which is cool, where you could hover over cards and the Mythic Championships and see what they do. And so that was exciting. And then, you know, we had this tournament portal where we wanted to tell better stories of things that are happening in a tournament, and the tournament organizers can manage that through player stats, standings, and share that through the stream in an interactive way. So we did all these things, and we think that, you know, we're excited how people use them. We have a ton of data where you know, millions of people have used this stuff to watch magic, which is really exciting for us. However, you know, the, the big vision, you know, obviously is includes doing this for all sorts of different types of content. Um, and what we have not been able to do yet publicly, but that we have been working on is, is connecting content creators with the purchase of the product. So when we started Cardboard Live, we had two main goals. One was to tell better stories using technology. That's like stories of a game, stories of an event, 
using interactivity, but the other is to uh, incentivize, help content creators better monetize. And that's somebody like when I started Cardboard Live, you know, I wanted to do it full time. And I know you guys, for example, you love magic. So one of our problems is like, how do we help people make enough money to quit their jobs and do this full time? The trading card market is actually huge. It's way bigger than the esports market. There's a lot of companies doing very well in the space. And the influencers, primarily on Twitch streaming magic, drive a ton of the card purchasing activity in, in for paper trading cards. We still want to figure out ways of connecting those people to the outcome of purchasing the cards. So there's a lot of hurdles in that. There's a lot of issues with how you do that on Twitch, with all of the players in the space and everything else. But as what we consider our whole team effectual entrepreneurs, we know the big problems that we want to solve and we sort of follow the path to get there by trying different things. So we've created technology off of Twitch, but in partnership with Twitch using their streaming service to test the purchasing of cards with hope that it can be put on some of these other major platforms eventually or, or utilized in some interesting ways where people can actually purchase the things that they want that they would buy anyways through their favorite content creator's stream so that their favorite content creator can get a cut of the sale of the things that they would buy anyways, and, and everybody would win and, and sort of gamify that experience. So this is sort of a, a long answer, but this is what we, the way we started in Magic, started in digital CCGs like Skyweaver and talking to a few others, and we would like to take this to a variety of other content verticals and are doing a lot of things that I probably can't talk about at the moment on the podcast, but it, we're really excited about doing this. Uh, some of the stuff's really weird, too, so when, once everybody hears about it, they're like, what in the world is that? But so yeah but the concept of like like transacting on some sort of like media platform has potential for like any sort of topic right it doesn't just have to be card games so i could like i could definitely fathom like you like cooking shows and like have you know sell like pots and pans and like i don't know like this really cool type of i don't know, like coffee or whatever you know there's like it basically like the whole like world is like your like little oyster lobster whatever concoction you want but i think that's that's, that's definitely kind of cool i mean when you came up with cardboard live like was there something you noticed that was like missing maybe in, we'll, we'll start with the Magic the Gathering community, but maybe it also could just be like Twitch in general or streaming in general. Do you like, do you think that like that was what was missing? Is that what pushed you towards like, you know, pursuing this or basically like, you know, when, when you have an idea, you like, it has to solve some sort of problem, right? So what sort of problem did you identify as needing to be solved? Yeah. So the major one would be the, the difference between the viewership of a game like League of Legends and Magic is huge. However, the game of Magic the Gathering is one of the most popular games in the world, you know? And so there's very clearly a problem with how a game like Magic is viewed as a competition or even individual people playing the game. It's, it's very difficult to follow. Like even as somebody like you guys who plays competitively, like if you just hop into a game, it takes some time to figure out what's happening, if you hop into a tournament, it's hard to really understand the storyline. There's a lot that can be done on the, on the production side of things, probably, to improve a lot of this. But then there's also a lot of opportunities for technology to automate and solve a lot of these things. And so that's what we, we set out to do, was try to find simple solutions using technology to, to solve these problems, to make the games that we like to play a uh, more enjoyable viewing experience to the extent that you know we also want to we as a me and James want to watch them more. So that was the, that was the biggest problem that, that we set out to solve was like this missing information, lack of engagement in streaming uh, games that are complicated like, like magic. So 
Yeah, uh, Zan feels very strongly about like how successful like League of Legends is as like a game that you can put in front of somebody and like they can watch it, you know, and sort of like digest all that sort of information. And I, I feel like for Magic, that's something that will always like like just it, it does seem like a barrier to entry. And I think using something like Cardboard Live maybe to sort of like at least begin breaking down the layers of complexity to get into the game is is pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, like, the problem that Magic has, one, one of the biggest problems it has is that it doesn't simplify things. Like, you know what's a simple simple concept? We saw it when we were kids in Yu-Gi-Oh, right? In Yu-Gi-Oh, they had, like, this stadium where someone would play a card and a giant monster would appear. Everybody understands when a giant monster is attacking another giant monster, it's going to die, right? Like, that's what we don't see in Magic. Like, the animations are so far behind even in arena that like they don't like just show what what's actually happening because in league of legends you see characters killing each other so at the end of the day at least you see some like cool magical effects and an end result where in magic there's an effect but there's a whole thesis behind the the effect if you try and watch a paper magic tournament right now like it feels like we're we're like decades behind the other games so the community be, be, being behind the fact that paper needs to come back, it just like lets you know how far behind we are in terms of the technology. But what Cardboard Live is doing by simplifying that experience is exactly what, what our game needs to, to move forward. Oh, yeah. that's that's I actually mean, a really interesting yeah. question. Actually, Wilson, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this real quick. Sorry. Yes. So cardboard live post COVID, we sort of identified how. What do you feel about the future of paper magic, given all the recent like developments we've had in like the digital world with like whether it's arena, MTG melee, all these sort of things. I have this somewhat unpopular opinion within our groups of uh, our types of people that I think paper magic is going to thrive personally in the future, and uh, most people I, I talk to don't necessarily think that. The reason why I think that it will continue to thrive as a as a physical product is because the digital product increases the the funnel of people that are interested. It's crazy that mm -hmm. if you look at Hasbro's numbers, even during COVID, they had record sales of Ikoria, for example, when people weren't even congregating for F and M um, of people buying boxes of Ikoria and, and the paper product. So. I wow. personally think that as Arena grows and as Magic does a better and better job of supporting the digital game and also supporting digital broadcasts, it will make people more interested in, in buying the paper product. Now, things might change you know, in, in how the product is bought and maybe there's more integrations, maybe the paper product is enjoyed digitally in a variety of ways, but I personally think it's still going, going to be there. So. That's super interesting. Like, I think we're going to need a larger sample size, but like that, that's really interesting that Ikoria had record sales. There's like kind of been like a huge fad that that's been going on. A bunch of YouTubers, like, I don't know if you know of uh, Logan Paul, um, have been buying old Pokemon packs and like trying to open Charizards kind of as like clickbait material. So also, a bunch of YouTubers, they, like, pulled out their old Pokemon cards and kind of have been, like, showing what they collected when they were kids and stuff like that. So that's been, like, a huge, huge fad. So I feel like card like card games right now, like collectibles, are just huge. But after when this, like, I'm interested to see what happens after when this fad kind of dies down. Because, like, Magic is also owned by Hasbro, so it's Pokemon, right? So, like, I'm kind of interested to see what happens to the numbers after that. If 
COVID like keeps keeps us from running paper tournaments. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, even if paper tournaments aren't run post COVID, I still think that the desire to buy a physical gaming product, my, my theory is that it will still be there, even though it might be different. But again, I know I, I recognize that within, you know, the, the groups of people that we are, we are with, I mean, you know, even some people on my team, like don't think the same yeah. thing. So it'll definitely be interesting cool. to see. There's, there's a really interesting movement with blockchain and digital trading card games where, you know, the use of that sort of technology and, and trading these things as like non, non-fungible tokens or whatever allows for trading in, in, a, in a way that sort of gets people interested in the way that they would trade paper cards. So I know that there's a few games trying that. I, you know, I know nothing has really hit big time at this point, but that would be one way in which, you know, that trend gets taken over more by digital um, potentially, so... No, definitely. I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think crypto has, like, cryptocurrency has a huge, huge market, especially in gaming, um, especially if it gets picked up by one of these bigger companies. If it got picked up by Riot, because I know China's been dabbling in in Bitcoin, they had, like, the government had banned it at some point. I don't know what's going on right now, but all I know is that Bitcoin's on the on the rise, and if, if a gaming company decided to pick it up, um, one of the major ones, I think that it could definitely be easily adopted card games that makes a lot of sense and i know you've worked in that space yeah i'm looking at a game called uh splinterlands a little bit which is interesting i was just looking checking their discord before this but that there, there's there's several i think the key you know again this is just my opinion but my idea mm-hmm. is that a game has to have sound fundamentals and be a, a fun game and then all of the technologies that are really wonderful and allow you to do cool things come into play after that but it really takes somebody making a game that is enjoyable and, dare I say, addictive, like Magic the Gathering, uh, before, you know, the technology is not going to take any sort of crappy game and then make that, make it get really popular. Yeah. Um, so. If a deal like like that happened, like for, um, like World of Warcraft, they had like a marketplace, I think that would be pretty huge and revolutionary because like their player base is like, invested in in the game so much that they don't mind spending that extra twenty dollars on on skins and stuff like that so cryptocurrency would be like a pretty easy introduction to them 100 percent. i mean if you think about you know not not just cryptocurrency but what blockchain technology can do for a digital game so like there's just so many interesting applications like think about how in magic uh let's say the car i don't know let's say a goblin as a card Right. There mm-hmm. are there there could you could have a game where there's like a million goblins, but using blockchain mm-hmm. technology, you can know that that goblin was like top decked in some specific instance on like a, a world level tournament and it tracks the entire history of the card, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. So you could you could know if like Brian Kibler or LSV played with the card that you're buying or trading for and it could affect the value of that card. There's like digital signatures of people that basically digitally can sign cards, which is made possible mm-hmm. by blockchain, as opposed to just being, you know, digitally rendered art on something that has no backing to it. You know, it really is a yeah, game yeah. changer when it comes to that secondary market for, for digital trading card games. Yeah. Once people are like become more and more invested into technology and don't mind stuff being online and not actual like physical, I think stuff like that will definitely, God, 
collectibles are just it's just gonna be a whole everything's gonna be digital it's like I, I just can't even imagine where the world is headed um if i started collecting like goblin guides <laughs> like special uh digital goblin guides you know so my personal belief on the digital versus physical again i recognize mm-hmm. it's not popular but I, I i try not to view it as a as a zero sum game between digital and physical I think as mm-hmm. the general quality of life of the world is rapidly increasing due to technology and everything else, people are engaging more in entertainment. And because of the way culture is headed, people are engaging more in niche hobbies and alternative entertainment. And all of those mm-hmm. things do is open the funnel for, for more and more interesting things. So you've seen resurgence of all sorts of, in, even in person, you know, I love pinball, for example. And uh, yeah. there's a huge resurgence in pinball. And you, this, I mean, this is across the board. It's really, it's really the fact that culture is driving people towards alternative or niche hobbies. And I, I really think collectibles are similar. I mean, like you just brought up, Zana, you know, Pokemon and sports cards have been spiking during COVID. And maybe some of that has to do with COVID itself. But I do think mm-hmm. some of it has to do with these macro, just economic and cultural factors across the world. Uh, causing some of these things so yeah that's just my 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 belief i don't know no i mean it's been kind of crazy like i don't know why covid had like if there's like something that it's made me feel is like nostalgia like i've just wanted to feel that the most right and you know trading cards are a perfect example of like uh like collectibles just like prey on that right on on nostalgia so yeah i mean i'm just super interested to see what the next trend is or if this continue if these trends continue to spike speaking of trends though yo check it out all right so zan you mentioned this earlier which is like you're a player who's played in a lot of tournaments right you've experienced it and wilson mm-hmm. you you too you played in a lot of tournaments as well and I, yeah fine i'll put myself in there as well i played in a bunch as well mostly online so we've got a new thing going on it's called the lotus box octagon homage to uh you know just the ufc and stuff and this is kind of an interesting concept, Zan. So the basis of this is that this is going to be like an eight-man arena. Eight people walk in. You know, they pay buy-in for 20 bucks. One person walks out with basically an incredible prize. Um, let's talk about this a little bit because I wanted to ask Wilson a very specific question about this. But, you know, like Zan, introduce the concept for it. And then, Wilson, I have one question for you. Go ahead. All right. So... Basically, I was tired of playing in tournaments that qualify you for qualifiers that are qualifying you for like the PT or something, you know, like everything is just qualifying for something else. And it like it drives you crazy because like you play 15 rounds to finally like get into a position to make some money. And I just hate that about magic. So like we really wanted to make a tournament that was like super super fast basically skip the whole swiss phase and you're just already playing for the money so this tournament is eight people twenty dollar entry first place takes a hundred dollars second place gets their money back and yeah i mean these are super fast and in terms of like covering the event like it's super easy we have our eight players we're talking about those eight players i just really hate when i'm watching a tournament and i see someone earlier in the day and they're not relevant later on in the day so if i know that eight people are in the tournament and they're gonna either win that tournament in three rounds or lose like that to me is just like way more appealing and i also think that like 
winning three rounds of magic and walking away with five times your money is just the way I want to play magic. You know, like this is a tournament I would be interested in. Yeah, I think it's relatively high stakes enough where like, you know, so you you pay 20 bucks. All you have to do is go 3-0 in a pod and you walk out with 100 bucks, right? So I get the feeling that like, you know, if you're really good at the game and you think you can farm people, like this is just a freebie for you, right? What I'm kind of interested also in is, is like the concept of a narrative, right? Wilson, you're talking about that with Cardboard Live, how magic is kind of hard to sort of parse. Zan, you're talking about it right now, which is like when you watch the stock tournament coverage, it's kind of difficult to track like, okay, Reed Duke was doing well. He was 2-0 in day one. Where is he at at the end of round 15? And if he's not relevant, like you just, it's just like, you know, where does the narrative go? It just sort of crumbles, right? And that by virtue happens when you have these larger tournaments, but with eight people, it just seems really easy to sort of make a... I don't know. I, I kind of like the idea of just being able to like have like a closed personal more just a smaller circuit, if you will. The cool thing about these kind of things is that you can fire off a lot of these events. You just need like as soon as the queue fills up, uh, you know, you can fire off whatever. And it, it just seems interesting to me because like even Cardboard Live could make a big impact on this, right? Like whether we could use this to find more about the players, find more about the deck list, find more about like uh, just like things like the event itself and be like how to sign up. We could sign up in like real time, Wilson. So, so, so this is kind of one thing that I wanted to ask you about. And I'm, I'm going to double down a little bit further, which is Zan and I were talking about a certain idea, right? We talked about like microtransactions and how that could make it kind of interesting for just like watching in general from the viewer perspective. So my question to you, Wilson, is, is just like Twitch recently enabled something called predictions, right, on, on uh, their channel where you can, you know, someone like a mod or the channel owner will put a prediction. They'll say, hey, will Anurag 5-0 this league? And Zan, you have two minutes to put in your money. You can bet any number of channel points you want. Uh, do you think he's going to 5-0 this league? And, you know, after a couple minutes or when the result comes out, if you win, you, you get you get paid big. If you lose, well, you know, you could try again later. So the thought process here is what do you feel about this sort of um, like betting style slash prediction, whatever you want to call it for something like magic? And we can even use like, let's say like this eight man, this octagon as like a theoretical platform for for that kind of thing. I remember you sounded kind of interested in it and I wanted to know like what exactly about that was like eyebrow raising from the perspective of someone who has sort of just like built multiple products from the ground up and like, you know, just like from, you know, just like from your mind. Yeah. Like, so what do I think about the behavior of somebody that would, so yeah, I think it's really cool. I mean, we're, we're working on that for some other non-magic related things right now. And I, I mean, we would like to try this out maybe with you guys. I don't know if this is like a, an on-air pitch slash business deal discussion or, or what have you. But uh, so, so yeah, I think this is really cool. I like that there is a more immediate outcome than like trying to figure out what's going to happen in a 15-round event. I think there's a lot of things going on here, I guess I, I comment on. The first thing is, you know, the eight mans, it reminds me a lot of how what eventually became Magic Fest used to be just Grand Prix. I know many, many people who would travel to Grand Prix just to grind these eight man, these eight person events uh, all weekend long, and in fact, I think many people did that back in the pre-COVID world. And I think that there's a reason for that. I think that there, a lot of people do really enjoy the the idea of playing three rounds of Magic, getting in there. There's just so many different types of people that have reasons for why they do it. Some people want to try all sorts of different types of decks in these tournaments. Some people are, are more just one of like, their small fix and they can't devote all that time. 
And whatever the reason is, I do know that that eight-person format has really been successful. I mean, that's the whole uh, the eight-person little league things on Magic Online where, with, with drafts and everything. I mean, people played tons of those. and So, yeah, I think it's a really great idea. I really do like the idea of testing, choosing people. And obviously, Twitch also knows that. I think everybody in the interactive streaming space is trying this in their various uh, content verticals. Is the audience choosing some outcome and being rewarded in some way? I think Cardboard Live is positioned well with some technology that we've created to try out those things off of Twitch uh, in this little sandbox experience that we have where we can do some things that Twitch does not currently allow with choosing people and being rewarded monetarily for choosing people. So that's something that I think that we can... I would love to test with you guys, you know, which would be cool, or anybody else who's interested in that. I know James did a, an email blast to our users a couple of days ago saying that we have the stuff that we want to get some beta testers for. So that's me. Pick me. Pick me. I want. I want. A, I want a beta test. <laughs> but yeah, I I, I kind of think it's interesting too because it really does, like like we're talking right when you walk into a magic stream and you have no idea what's really going on. It does take a while to figure out and like. Also, like, let's say you don't even play Magic, right? It's even more complicated. I, I do feel like putting stakes into a watching, for example, with this sort of, like, microtransaction, like gambling, betting, you can call it whatever you want, you know what I mean? Does sort of get the user a lot more invested into the content because then suddenly there's something on the line for them. And you don't really see that too often in, well, I mean, I guess, like, high-level places like, uh, like Riot Games probably would never do anything like that just because of the sheer volume. But, like, just imagine, like, I don't know, like, I feel like if I, if I was watching Reed Duke and, like, I was, you know, if I had, like, like five bucks on the line on him winning, right? Like, you you bet I would just, like, have my eyes glued to, you know, that one match where I'm saying this is going to happen. And it, it's also kind of interesting because, like you mentioned, Wilson, you're it seems like you're just uh, a huge fan of, like, data, just, like, sort of, like, betting patterns and that sort of thing would be interesting to see, like, and study and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. It would just, it for me, it would make a really nice environment where people could, like, interact more, but it also forces them to, like, not just, like, sort of, you know, switch tabs and, like, you know, not really keep, like, a clean, like, look at what's going on. I think it, it does create that level of investment, which I'm I'm really excited about. Plus, you know, once there's stakes on the line, then, like, People will get like a little bit more protective. One thing I think that Magic doesn't really have is like trash talk. Trash talk would be so nice to have um, in some form or way. And like, you know, then you could really say just like, all right, put your money where your mouth is. Let's see like, you know, let's see like a, a grudge match or something like that. So I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. Definitely. No, I'm, exci I'm excited about this. The, the hard part for me is that I would like to figure out how to do some of these things. But I also am interested in trying to farm Honorog in these eight-person events. I mean, you don't have a sh ghost. When's the last time you played Magic, my dude? Let me tell you, Monastery Mentor ain't what it used to be. I'm just saying. What about Sahili and three mana? Oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, this is right, the public so blast-out, by the way. Did, wait, wait. Wilson Zane, Hunter. Zane had a question. Zane I don't had know. A question. <laughs> Zane had a question. Uh, I mean, I was just, just going to say, if, if I was betting on one of you guys... I might, I might go with the left. Oh, what? Woo! Yo, all right, all right, all right. Whoa, 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 whoa. All right, all right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, all right. Oh, man. I mean, his track record is pretty good for being a legacy specialist. Every time he's played any other format, he's just wiped it clean. I, and I right know. now, it's Anurag is a really good player, you know, even, even though I've never lost him. <laughs> 
I'd mop the floor with oh. Wilson's wig. That's what I'm telling you right now, dude. Oh. <laughs> Anurag and I were on the same team one time. Are we allowed to talk about that at some point? Let's do yeah, it. Yeah. To let's, it. Let's, All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. So that was a lot of fun. So it was me, Anurag, and our, and our buddy, Lee Marino, who we did not know prior to this event. Dude, rest in peace, and Lee Marino's watch, though. Okay, keep going. Oh, they're so... They're, all these things bring back great memories. So we, we were an eclectic group. I think me and Anurag... Wait, I forgot. What, did we wear suits at this? Or did we wear like blazers at this thing? Or was that me and Bryant? And- I did not wear a blazer to Santa Clara. No. <laughs> okay. I don't... I, I, I sort of... I, saw, I thought I sort of remember it. Did me, Bryant, and Lee teamed one time, right? And then me, you, and Lee teamed? Is that uh, right? Yeah. That's I my official that's right. answer. I get you mixed up with Bryant. You guys... No, I'm just kidding. But uh, so... <laughs> It was it was interesting. Anurag was our legacy player. I was mm-hmm. <laughs> figuring out Modern Storm, which I don't think was ever a good deck. But that was, it's like one of those things where it's like it's so it's very fun. It's like a puzzle. So it, it was good in 2018. If you played it in 2018, I mean Caleb never lost. Caleb Sheridan yeah. never lost with that deck. No, he was really good at it. I actually played it at a at a Modern Pro Tour. Did poorly with it, and I should not have played it at, at that. Pro Tour. Wait, was that the Splinter Twin Pro Tour? No. Uh, so which one was that? Uh, the one. The first one, Philadelphia. Where, yeah, yeah, that was it. Was the first one? You no, know, I played. I played Naya Zoo at that Pro Tour. However, I went four one and constructed. Ooh. Um, no, but I played Storm at uh, Rivals Pro Tour Rivals, and it was just not really well positioned. Oh, I think oh. it was maybe positioned better like six months prior to that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I just didn't feel very good with it. So. All that being said, I don't know. There is a bunch of fun things that happen. On the positive side of all these stories, so me, me and Anurag, like, you know, we sort of jab each other and, and chortle, have a lot of fun. Uh, but I will say we had we had a moment of, of great teamwork in a side. Oh, my God. You were thinking of the same thing, huh? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Let's do it. Okay, go, 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 go. No, you tell this. Story. I'm not as good at telling this. So it, yeah. Wait, no, wait, okay, okay, no, all I remember from this scenario is that I was playing a very tricky matchup. I was playing Miracles, okay, my opponent was playing Dark Depths, right? I thought it was Infect, was it Dark Depths or Infect? It was, it was Dark Depths, okay. it was 100% okay. Dark Depths, yeah. And, like, I get absolutely pounded in game one, and I'm like, all right, look, Wilson, we're X and one right now, I can't deal with this, you know, we need, we need to talk. And, and Wilson has a good history, a good background playing Miracles, right? Yeah. So that's why we, that's why we seated it this way, because... Uh, he was in the middle, modern, uh, and Lee was standard. So Wilson, with his aptitude, would be able to apply to you know whatever mono red deck Lee was playing. And then if I needed help, I could just like tag in my 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 miracles co-host, and we would just talk about like how to sideboard. And I think this was just like perfect execution because it was just such a fluid motion. You know, when you have a conversation with someone where like everything goes right and all the vibes get checked and we're like, oh wait, but this reason is this. And you saw how many Sylvan libraries and there was a pitting needle. Okay, we need to be able to protect Jace. So let's go ahead and bring in like a disenchant or two. And then what card is bad? Oh, well the third terminus doesn't make sense because we didn't see dark conflict. Like it was, it was the most fluid, <laughs> like 60 second discussion I've ever had in my life in person with someone next to me about Magic the Gathering, period. It was great. <laughs> That's I'm a not really sure good way of describing it. Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's a really hard story to tell on a podcast because it was one of those moments. It was sort of like, not, not to be weird. I mean, it was one of those like, you know, you really hit it off with somebody on the first date kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And it was like finishing it was weird about that. Sin- <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I feel like you and I were, were vibing. Is that, what, is that what they say? It's right? a classic bromance. It, yeah. I mean, it, it, yeah. it really was. So, <laughs> and I, I remember just like sort of giddily debriefing that whole experience over like some beers that evening where we were just 
you know, patting each other on the back, talking about that 60 second conversation. He's literally, you can't see his webcam right now, but Wilson is like jumping up and down. It's <laughs> I, actually just hilarious. I absolutely love this. I like magic is another language, right? Like, and when you, when, when both of you guys are speaking on the same level, it's, I, I know exactly what you guys are talking about. So dude, that's beautiful. Like you don't have to say much more about it. Cause I, I, I can feel it. But other than that wonderful moment, Anurag would de-sleeve and sleeve his debt between every single round, almost causing us to be late to every match. So that that was the opposite of vibing. That that was like me thinking that we were going to get like game losses every every round. Do you want to actually hear something hilarious, Wilson? So out of all my years of doing this, so yeah, so just a little bit about me. I do de-sleeve and re-sleeve between like every other round. It's just like a mental thing. I think I go boom if I touch like sticky sleeves and I, 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 I don't know. I can't explain it. I know it's irrational. I accept all flame. I don't know. I saved I like fourteen hundred dollars this year because of COVID and not having. <laughs> but actually, though, dude, um, I actually have like thirty boxes of sleeves just in my in my closet. Just like I, they're sitting, I, I I don't know what to do with them. I, anyways, so I was at uh, I think it was Grand Prix Niagara, the one that uh, Cyrus won, Niagara Falls. Uh, no, Atlanta. No, no whatever. Niagara Falls which, which was, was, uh, it was a was a Daniel. Yeah, Daniel, yeah. I think it, so. I think it was um Atlanta, right? I actually yeah. was late to the event because I was busy re-sleeving for my round one PTQ. And I got a game loss for the first time in my life. And I was like, oh God, I feel like I better learn my lesson this way. And then it was, I think I was played against like Ely Cassis. Cassis, yeah. And he was on uh, some weird like blue white transform artifact deck. So I like 3-0'd him anyways because uh, game one loss and then I won 2-0. So I feel like I haven't really learned my lesson yet, and I'm still going to continue doing the same thing. I don't know what the moral of the story is, except I'm... Hi, my name's Anurag, and if you'd like to team with me, here are some of the things you'll have to sign off for, uh, dotted line, please. You know what I'm saying? So I mean, we, get, we just, we just got to get uh, sleeves that are, like, sweat-proof or whatever. Dude, million-dollar idea? Cardboard Live? Can we do that? <laughs> yeah, but is that even the reason? It's it's some, like, compulsive thing. It has nothing to do with the problem with the sleeves. It's, it, it just has to do with... I don't know. But so when when James and I reached out to Anurag to test some of our uh, streaming e-commerce tech, yeah. we were like, oh, what are some things we could sell through Anurag's stream that we can, we can do? And then I think James and I were immediately like, oh, we're selling sleeves. We're selling <laughs> sleeves through his stream. Dude, that's oh, so man. good. That's yeah. so good. I stayed with Anurag for one of the events that were that was in DC, and I definitely took like 10 boxes. And they were like, brand, they were perfect. Like, there was nothing wrong with them. I have. Yo, half my sleeves have only been used for, like, four or five matches, period. Like, it's it's actually... You, you want to know how crazy I get, dude? I used to refrigerate my sleeves because I thought they would come out, <laughs> and they just, like, shuffle better. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's... Oh, my I, God. I have all sorts of crazy when it comes to sleeves, which is why I'm kind of grateful about For Magic Online. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, I think that that should be a good note to end today's podcast on. Wilson, thanks so much for joining us. I feel like there's a lot of questions that some people might have, especially about like, you know, my sleeve addiction. No, just like, you know, like Cardboard Live and like, you know, what, you know, what they offer, what they might be doing, you know, any cool things like that. So Wilson, where can people reach you if they want to, uh, to, to talk to you more about this stuff? Yeah, you could email me directly at Wilson at Cardboard.Live. You can tweet at Cardboard Live. You could, I don't know, friend me on Facebook, message Ooh, me. Okay. I might, I might just do that. I might just do that. Send cool. me a letter. So, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> sure. Address coming in soon. Um, but yeah, same thing here. If you have any questions, thoughts, concerns, if you want us to talk about any specific topic you'd be interested in the two of us, Zan and me, talking about, hit us up at Team Lotus Box on Twitter or email us mtglotusbox at gmail.com. Super sickly. This is going to be Zan and Anu checking out. We'll see you for the next episode. Peace.